2: Hello out there, rock fans, and welcome to another episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, where we're talking about everything classic rock, hard rock, progressive rock, and heavy metal. I am your host, The Wolf, Mac B., and we'll be joined, as always, by Action Jackson. Hello. Today we are going to talk about the cult classic, the animated cult classic Heavy Metal, uh, which comes out in 1981, had an incredible soundtrack that you're likely not to see again as far as the heavyweights that are on there and just the flow uh, that fit with the movie. But we want to thank you all for listening to our Recent podcast, the one on Pink Floyd's Delicate Sound of Thunder, was our most popular yet, uh, and we want to thank you for that. We hope you enjoyed the 2020 year in review of Rock and Holiday Gift Ideas, as well as the Van Halen Tribute. You can find us anywhere now, most anywhere that you can download podcasts Amazon, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Deezer, really, most anywhere. That you like to download and listen to your podcast so subscribe and let us know what you think how we do it what are we doing right what are we doing wrong what can we do better let us know you can find us on twitter at ugly underscore werewolf
0: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's jump into uh the cult classic couldn't call it anything else uh, heavy metal animated picture based out of a canadian i think group to make the picture and based on i guess you would kind of call it a fanzine or a monthly kind of graphic novel kind of thing I mean, did you ever pick up heavy metal the magazine like when we were kids
1: I was I had seen copies of it like you know somebody had a cooler older brother who had a copy of heavy metal and I remember leafing through what I can't remember which one it was but thinking to myself like how, this is like kind of uh, like I don't know how you'd sell this in not something that's not an adult store. But uh, yeah, it's it was it was a comic book basically, yeah, like a graphic novel, but extremely graphic with fantasy elements in it.
2: That's right, It it was a little uh, even pornographic. Some people would call it. I mean, compared to a comic book, obviously, and they weren't sold right next to each other necessarily. But I think you would see them next to music magazines and maybe Fangoria and like horror picture magazines yeah. and stuff like that at the bookstore or the I never really I never really saw one until I was way older but you know it, it's kind of we got a, a Dungeons and Dragons theme to some of them some of them yeah. are more modern animation think, for adults right
1: yeah I don't think there was any kind of continuity to it I think like literally like it was a standalone everyone was a standalone deal and I, I, I did a little research on this, and I don't think that there was much, even the stories in it were just kind of like, you just kind of had to go with it. There may not be a beginning, middle, and end, mm-hmm. which is kind of like something was happening, and we're throwing you in the middle of the action
2: here. And yes, it's some warrior fighting a dragon for a princess, or it's some space cowboy, you know, whatever it is. It could be any of that kind of fantastical stuff. Of course, it's called Heavy Metal. So it's going to attract a certain a certain type of reader, I suppose. And, of course, the soundtrack is fairly hard rock. Not all of it, but fairly hard rock. There's a couple of songs in there with heavy metal in the title and some heavy metal bands. When did you
1: first learn about or hear about the movie?
2: The movie comes out in 1981. We're a little young for this. It's... We're eight years old, nine years old, whatever. It was a big midnight theater kind of movie, you know. It, it did, I read it did make money. On a $9 million budget, it grossed over $20 million or something like that. But it had a fairly long life in the second run and in the special kind of neighborhood movie houses. Uh, so, like on a Friday night, you know, if the run might be something like Pink Floyd, The Wall, Rocky Horror, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, something like that. Eventually, something like a Day's the confused. You would see it, and it was there was a place called the Vogue in St. Matthew's where I near where I grew up, and I would pass by the Vogue every day. And it was an old movie house, kind of like you just have a neighborhood movie house with one theater. One screen. Yeah, instead of a, a multiplex. It was in what you we kind of call a strip mall today, but it's you know it's like a series of connected buildings, and one was a drugstore, and one was a fish shop, and one was a whatever. Um, and there's theater had been there for a long time, and I think my bus, my school bus even passed by there many, many days, so I could always see what was on the Vogue, and I would see it was Rocky Picture or, or heavy metal. When you're a little kid, you don't really know what heavy metal is, and it's something grown up kids like, eh, I don't know what that is. Uh, and then when I started to kind of come of age, I started to wonder what it was about, and I think it was on Cinemax one night, right? You know, like at midnight or t- two in the morning or something like that, they had to fill the time so I recorded it, and then I got to, to watch it and was just kind of blown away because the animation was pretty cool, even by the time I got to it. Ahead of its time. It's not just about Smurfs or superheroes. It's about some stuff kind of looks realistic, but then some stuff is also very fantastic. But the soundtrack is unbelievable, and that's that's certainly what caught me. How about you?
1: I was in the same boat. I think that you know there was kind of this uh it was like the white buffalo like you know there's a movie out there and it's it's animated and there's naked women in it and <laughs> it's outer space and that can't possibly be right no well no 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 somebody told me about this it's this it's heavy metal it's based off the con- okay you know i mean it sounded too good to be true right like there's no way you couldn't actually make a movie like that and then yeah i think i saw every once in a while like in the paper or something there would be uh you know bonnie python and heavy metal like heavy metal would always be like the midnight showing like they weren't you know sun had to be way down before they showed you that and then yeah i think the first time i actually saw it was that copy you had from cinemax at three in the morning or whatever you and then yeah and it's the it was the it's a crazy movie doesn't really make a lot of sense there's really no continuity to it other than the you know, the loose The, the Green the Ball, the Loch Nahr, or, right? Yeah, <laughs> Lochnar is but the soundtrack is just fantastic. Part of those like you'd know, heard some of the songs before, like, you know, you'd heard Mob Rules by Black Sabbath, but you know, the, you Take a Ride
2: mm-hmm.
1: by Don Felder. I'd never heard that song before until I saw the movie, like, Wow, oh, that's a really good song. Why yeah. have I, why has this not been bigger? And heavy metal by Sammy Hagar, which is not I learned is not the same it's a different version that you hear on whatever Standing Hampton or whatever his, wherever it came out that he released it, it's a little faster and his vocals are not as prominent in the movie version, mm-hmm. but it's not the same thing. Okay, and, yeah, it was just, it's just a, it was just a crazy, like I remember watching and thinking like, all right, what did I just see? That's crazy.
2: Well, I think I heard Eddie Trunk say once that maybe even Mob Rules was a bit different from... The album version E fifty one fifty, which is kind of the dramatic build up to Mob Rules, was in the movie. It was not on the soundtrack, but it was in the movie. And then they put Mob Rules on there, and then it's maybe the O oh, come on at the beginning isn't in there. Or there's just it's it's not very different because I've heard them both a lot, you know, a lot. And
1: I think that was the that was the big problem with that deal. It, from what I understand, was the, the soundtrack, songs on it. That's why it was never out on home video, because the licensing was just a disaster. I don't think there was any licensing.
2: Well, that, That's exactly right. That's part of why it lived on so long in the theaters that once a month you could see it at the Vogue or some independent theater, because you could never get it on VHS. Because of the licensing, because of the expense of paying the publishers of those songs, and look, there's 16 songs on the record, Nine of those 16 are made by Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, right? Serious heavyweights are on this record. And then some of the ones that aren't are people like Grand Funk Railroad and Blue Oyster, Colt Nazareth, big bands, few other bands uh, that aren't as well. But Irving Azoff, who represented the Eagles, amongst others, and is now a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think he was in charge of that, and, you know, he's in charge of making sure his people get paid. So you couldn't get it on VHS or DVD until, I think it was the mid-90s. Something like that. So yeah. having that VHS from uh, from Cinemax was the only way we could have seen it, really, for um, but for years.
1: Yeah. So I'm looking at this thing now. So you've got Sammy Hagar, Devo, Blue Oyster Cult, Cheap Trick, Don Felder, Donald Fagen from uh, Steely Dan, Nazareth, Journey, Grand Funk, Cheap Trick, Black Sabbath, Don Felder, and Stevie Nicks. There, you'll never find another soundtrack like that again. You might you might have one or two licensed songs and the rest of them are all kind of... never. You're never going to have that much firepower because you you would be so astronomically expensive.
2: Exactly. Plus, well, these kind of films, just animated films do great, family animated films do great, Pixar stuff, sure. But these kind of films don't make a ton of money, right? But, you know, I always hoped that they they would make another one. Uh, And, of course, eventually they did, Heavy Metal 2000, which I have to say is fairly disappointing. It's it's not really, I mean, it's it's got that amazing animation. It has some cool music in it. It's just basically one story. It's not nearly the kind of snippets and short scenes, yet somehow connected. But, you know, short pieces, I guess from the original film, those were all based on original stories and works of art by guys who had done the magazine for years, like they pulled the best of the best. To Correct make the movie. Yeah, and, which and the, the other thing that
1: I was thought was cool was it was one movie, right? With little, it was almost like creep show with the little vignettes in it. But the, even the animation wasn't the same, so you knew A was ending, and then B was something new because it didn't even look the same, which was kind of interesting, also.
2: And it's all pre digital, right? So it's all done by hand, and there's different ways to do that. So yeah, some of it looks real crisp, some of it looks kind of grainy, some of it may have something more like they filmed it and then they kind of colored over it a little bit yeah i know the famous scene of tarna you know putting on her warriors outfit such as it was they had a model do that and act that out and then let the guys kind of sketch over the film uh, to make that scene it's fun i mean i always think science fiction done right is a great use of cinema because it is fantastic. It's not just doing a play where you stomp around and, like, here's what it's like living in Yonkers in the 30s, you know? It's, it's about something otherworldly that you can't just look out your backyard and see or look down your hallway. Whether it's creatures or showing uh, traveling in outer space or what the world could look like in 200 years, that kind of thing. Well, you could do a better with animation. Interesting. Yeah, that's,
1: that's an interesting point because you're right. If you make something about, you know, St. Louis, 1929, you have to, like, you know what people look like, you know what the cars look like. This can be anything you want. You know, I mean, it, make a dragon. All right, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like what's coming out of my head right now.
2: Right. What does the
1: planet look like?
2: It's so, creative. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it's supposed to It's And some people don't like that. Some people, if it's not about me driving my truck to the coal mine and driving back with a tear in my eye, you know, I don't want to hear the song or – I don't want to see the movie. But and but the other thing is, if it's done poorly, it's hard to connect, right? Because then the people who barely connect don't connect at all. The people who want it to be good are disappointed. But I think this is because it's, it's generated so much interest over time in that they did get a sequel made later on, that it did have such a long run in the midnight movie houses, and that it's been batted around a few times in Hollywood. A few different people have... Tried to revive it. Robert Rodriguez has has tried to revive it for years. And what's interesting is, because I've been looking for something close to it, right, as far as an adult, well-made, animated picture. Not adult porno, but, I mean, adult R-rated. Or adults. Yes, exactly. You know, maybe, yes, there's a little nudity or violence or bad words, but it's, it's it's a motion picture. It's just like... Lethal Weapon, or whatever. You know, um, it's a it's a movie. Worth seeing. And there's just not many out there. And then the first time I finally found something like it was recently with Netflix, called Love, Death, and Robots, where they have these different episodes, again, with different animation, different kinds of times and places, different fantastical, sums in outer space, some's in the future, some's in the past, whatever. And I'm like, this is great. And I watched them all. I, and then when I was started doing research for this, it was like, um, apparently the guy who did, like, Fight Club and a few things, he was behind that. He, and he had, before, I guess, Robert Rodriguez had gotten it, he was trying to put together the sequel for Heavy Metal in the early 2000s, in the, in the, before he got to 2010. Uh, and they just could never quite make it work. And so what was born out of it was Love, Death, and Robots. And I said, hey it's the best thing since heavy metal and it's from the guy who's was trying to make another heavy metal. So that's actually pretty cool. Yeah.
1: And that might be the, that might be the way to do it because if you were going to remake something like that, I don't think you could, you just couldn't capture the magic again. It was just lightning in a bottle. I mean, the, the magazine must've been fairly popular at that point in time. Cause I can't imagine how they got that thing financed and somebody saying, yeah, okay. Cause I don't remember another adult cartoon anywhere around that time that had made money at the box office, so how, how did that pitch go? That's what I would have loved to have
2: heard. You're right, but it was Ivan Reitman, you know, um, and, and Ivan Reitman became a you know a huge producer uh, in Hollywood. Ghostbusters, anyone? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of talent in the movie. I mean, John Candy's got four, I think, different speaking roles. Eugene yeah. Levy's in it a couple of times. Uh, Joe Flaherty, who's on SCTV. My favorite is John Vernon, who is or yes. Dean Vernon Wormer <laughs> from Animal House. Yes.
1: You just know that voice, and it just fits perfectly.
2: For the prosecutor. Yeah. You know, Mr. (laughs)
1: Blutusky.
2: It's good stuff. And the other great part of it, and we're going to go through the soundtrack here, there's a lot of amazing music in it. The score is done by Elmer Bernstein, who is a big-time Hollywood composer and has done soundtracks for The Great Escape uh, and The Magnificent Seven, and I think he did work with Ivan again. On Ghostbusters, Hal Ramis has a part in the movie, so a lot of Canadian talent and uh, comic talent coming together for this picture. So you figure you get the animating talent in there, then you get all the acting talent, and then the musical talent is really it's off the charts. And Elmer Bernstein, in addition to the release of the heavy metal soundtrack back in 1981, they also released the score on LP, which is hard to find and there's not a, a ton of it out there, but it's kind of cool because it has some of the aliens from the trial scene of Captain Lincoln Stern kind of lined up across the top of, like, the notes, you know, sitting on there like, re- like they're reading them or looking at you. <laughs> but then it was re-released on CD as, like, a silver screen classic, and it was and it had, like, 27 tracks, basically had everything they recorded for it. Not easy to find. But if anyone out there can get their hands on it and get it to us, I've got an ugly American werewolf in London t-shirt with your name on it. Very difficult to find. Thanks to YouTube, anyone can see anyone can hear that now. And actually I I highly recommend that. Just put it on in the background for a meal or you know, when you're reading or something. It's over an hour's worth of music, Elmer Bernstein. It's great.
1: It is interesting how you can that you don't really think about it. A lot. I mean, you think about it in Star Wars, you think about it in you know Indiana Jones, but how much the soundtrack really drives what's going on, even if you don't consciously remember any of it when you walk out, it it gets in there and helps you with the with what you're watching.
2: Completely true, and that's why I wanted to talk about this movie because yeah, it's it's kind of juvenile, yes. I've read that people think it's sexist because obviously all the women and the men for that bar too, but the to women are, are very superhuman, voluptuous, overly sexy, but it's, again, it's a fantasy realm and it, it, it's supposed to be grown uh, for adults only. So, but it's, when you put that much, the rock and roll talent behind it, and then you put Elmer Bernstein, you know, I think he's won Oscar behind it, you put, Ivan Reitman and all those great comedy folks. I mean, it's, it's hard to fail. Um, so you get the right talent together. It's put it together. Now it's not a huge success, making $20 million off of $9 million. It's yeah. not It's not it, a blockbuster. Yeah, but it, it, and,
1: and I wonder, too, had they been able to, to put that together in the mid-'80s for a VHS release, how it would have changed things.
2: Well, they sold a million units in the 90s. Once it came out, finally, they sold a million units.
1: And I remember when that – yeah people ran out and bought it because, yeah, for the first time you could actually – it wasn't an old beat-up VHS copy or 2 o'clock in the morning at the theater. Yeah, I mean it sold well, and I think it it may have – because I know that was a big Blade Runner deal. Like Blade Runner didn't make any money when it came out, but it hit home video and people snapped it right up. I think that probably would have been the same with Heavy Metal in, you know, would say what, 83, 84, whenever they would have That's put a it out That's fair assumption, yes. Yeah.
2: That's right. And obviously that big hit in 95, 96 in there led them to say, great, there's Appetite for more, let's make another one. And, and they could have made serials of these, obviously. Every few years they could have made one because they never really ran, as long as they were still making the magazine. They continue to have content, right? And so, uh, and, and who knows, a new wave one in the later eighty or the middle 80s might have been interesting as well. Who knows? I right. like the heavy rock part of it. And we should go through the songs. They're great. And the way they play in the film. I was going to say that the one that really
1: struck me, and I, I'm kind of starting in the middle here, so forgive me, listening audience, but uh. it's that B-17 vignette where they're, it's World War II mm-hmm. and it's the Don Felder taking a ride and they don't at all go together. Like, you wouldn't think those two things, World War II, you know, Bombing Mission, and Don Felder, Mm -hmm. a song that he wrote in 19, but it it just, it works 100%.
2: It worked great. Heavy metal, taking a ride. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's... It, it sounds great. And you can hear Don Henley in the background, doing background vocals. Uh, you can hear is, it, is
1: it Don Henley or is it Timmy Schmidt?
2: It sounds like Don to me. Do you know? Do you have it in front I, of
1: you? I think I saw that. Hold on. Let me take a look and see if I can find out to be sure. Because it's it's got to be, it's somebody from the band, because the, it, those vocals, they're the harmonization you've heard before.
2: Right, right. And, I, and, and you know, it was Glenn Frey who had a beef with Felder. And then eventually he kind of had a beef with Henley. So then Henley could be (laughs) friends with Felder, I guess. I don't know. The two Felder tracks, because there's three folks have two songs on it. Cheap Trick has two songs. Uh, A band called Riggs has two songs who we'll talk about. Uh, And then Don Felder has two. And both that one, the Take It a Ride song from the B-17, but the one that I love was, uh, was All of You. Once they, in the scene where he goes to the Pentagon and they get the robot out of there, and then they take off out of there and they go out for a little space ride where they kind of, you know, zone out a little bit. That music was so mellow. It had a great bass line in it. And then, of course, when they're kind of, they're stoned, I guess you can say, uh, stoned through space and they have the space visuals on that. That song fit great, so those two songs were a great match,
1: right? If you were to be in a spaceship and to have partaken in something that would alter you, yes, that was the song that you would probably listen to. It went together well. A heavy Metal Taking a Ride, backing vocals from Timothy B. Schmidt, oh, and Don Henley, okay? So they were both, so we on were both the track. right, yeah, okay, yeah. that's
2: good, yeah, I, yeah. I, I so can you, hear Henley, yeah, so interesting, okay, well, that's good to hear. We're on the same page there, yeah, I mean, but, but you know, that is. Fe- Feldman, though, a never had a, a much of a solo career, though, right? I mean, I have his first solo album called Airborne. You really can't find it on CD. Um, it's hard to find on LP. It's not that great. I mean, I wanted it to be, and it's not. These two songs are good,
1: though. Which is odd, because you'd think, you know, if he had done these, he had more to do. Because, I mean, take that, take, well, you know, heavy metal taking a ride out of the everything. It's a pretty cool song to listen to. I mean, it's not, it's the, the melody's good. You know, it's kind of easygoing. It's—I uh, don't think it's definitely not an Eagles song. They couldn't have played that together. But I would have thought he would have had others others in the tank there, but apparently not.
2: Not, not too much, I guess. Yeah. Obviously, Sammy rocking out heavy metal on there. Sammy, which was, was
1: legitimately a hit. He's played that in concert. That's a big people associate that with Sammy Hagar.
2: And that's why I think they started off the soundtrack with it. It's yeah, a heavy metal soundtrack. Definitely want to go
1: big. Yeah, yeah definitely right. want to go big. And and I think those, if I'm not mistaken, at least those two songs were written for the movie.
2: What the Don Felder and the Sammy Hagar? And
1: Sammy Hagar. Yeah, I think some of these other ones, you know, like Mob Rules was taken off the. Oh sure, yeah. The, yeah, and I think what did Journey have? Uh, let me see. Open arms. Oh, yeah, Open Arms, that was not, they just took that, that was not made for the movie, so that was kind of a cool deal to to have that on the soundtrack as your... Well, and Stevie
2: Nicks, she, uh, I saw her on like, I think it was VH1 Storytellers or something like that, and she had put out a three-disc box set, and there was a young fan asking her about the song Blue land's like, oh, I heard this great song... Blue lamp on your box set and I'm wondering where it's from and and what's the song about and whatever. And she's telling a story about how she'd gotten a blue lamp for her sister or something like that and was taken on the airplane at Christmas. I don't know, something like that. Or or some lady had and she was carrying it with her. And she goes, idea, boom. And she started writing about the blue lamp right there on the plane. (laughs) And, and of course, she didn't mention She goes, it was from a soundtrack which shall remain nameless. (laughs) I'm like, oh, come on, Stevie come out, you know, you, you know you're glad to be on there. I'm sure Irving off helped you get on there, helped you get paid for it. Uh, but so you got a Stevie Nicks track that you couldn't get anywhere else. And I think it's a beautiful song uh, for Stevie.
1: Yeah, and again, fit well into the movie. It goes back to that the whole thing just helps enhance what's going on in the theater. Even if you don't really remember it, word note for note on the way out. It's it, In the moment, it definitely helps out.
2: That's right. So then, but in addition to the famous bands, there's a couple of folks on here that you wouldn't know. One's called Riggs, and they had two songs in there one's called Heartbeat, and one's called Radar Rider. And they're they're songs with hooks, they're they're songs that have a nice beat to them. um, And you listen to them a couple of times, and you you can sing along. You know, this guy Riggs, he kind of stepped in to this band, and he's a singer, and the songwriter, and a guitarist. They made a record. They put these two songs in there, which are pretty good. Apparently they made a record that didn't go much of anywhere. And then Jerry Riggs kind of toured with Pat Travers for 10 years as part of his band. And then, you know, just kind of became a working musician doing, you know, what you can. I
1: don't think there's any, I don't think there's any losers on this thing. I don't, I mean, it's all, I mean, obviously, you don't like some better than you like others, but there aren't any that fall flat. They all seem to fit perfectly where they're placed.
2: I agree. And even I mean, a couple of these songs, like Mob Rules or like Open Arms by Journey, I mean, those are kind of. Journey, certainly, that's a big hit. It's a big metal hit. You know, it's a classic thing for Black Sabbath. But, you know, like Nazareth has big songs like Love Hurts and things like that. But here's one, Crazy Supercase for Treatment, that Fitzins wouldn't have known it, you know, otherwise. Or Grand Funk does Queen Bee. Um, great for the. I don't know. He, it just fits the soundtrack well. It fits in the movie well. I never would have listened to it without the soundtrack, right?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And I I think that they're they're just a great band that didn't probably get enough recognition. They had a couple of hits, nothing super huge, but yeah, they they just played it they played the heck out of that thing.
2: And Cheap Trick had a lot of big hits. They are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But Reach Out and Take It, which was great in the movie, and then parts of I Must Be Dreamin was was I don't know if there's a funky odd part in it that, that really fits the movie well, not the big cheap trick hits, but they both sound great in the picture.
1: So out of all of the all of the little stories, what is your favorite?
2: Out of all the vignettes, let's see here. I like the Captain Stern one because he's a rotten guy. And they're gonna the guy's gonna clobber him, but then somehow he still gets away. Obviously, the final one with Tarna. She doesn't even speak. She's such a, a bad bad, bad girl, and she can, you know, murder and slay all the bad guys. She doesn't have to say a word. I think that's really awesome, but but I like the first... It's not really the first. It's kind of the first one. Harry Canyon, it's got... He's a cab driver in New York in 2030-something and gets into some trouble um, with his magical object and a girl and some gangsters. It's got It's got some of the best songs in it, right? It's got... Veteran of Psychic Wars by Blue Oyster Cult. It's got Open Arms by Journey. It's got Blue Light by Stephen Nix. It's, it's got Heartbeat by Riggs and True Companion by Don Fagan of, of Steely Dan. That's almost a third of the soundtrack in that one scene.
1: I like that too because it's like the, what do they call that? The noir million stories of the Gritty City. Right. This is mine, you know, devil Day. But the one that I really like, and I was watching it last night, the one with uh, that second one with John Candy, the den one where he goes to the other planet, only because it works so well for me that just that just that John Candy voice that, you know, fair enough, sir, fair enough, about how just this nerdy kid who's magically transported gets everything he ever wants. Now he's this Superman with, uh, he said, you know, yesterday I could find a woman and now I've got, you know, beat him up with day. a stick. And then, you know, he just, he's the one that says, you know what, I don't want any power. I just want to live here and be cool. I just think it's funny that the story and Candy's voice just go well together.
2: But, you know, what's interesting is Blue Oyster Cult got into the movie. Uh, I think they were kind of tasked to, to bring a song or two to the movie. And they wrote one called uh, The Pact, which was kind of a take on the last, the kind of penultimate scene of Tarna, Coming to save the day, and but the problem was it—it it kind of told the story. It kind of said she she rides the bird, and then it crushes, right. You know, it was, it's like actually following the story. And like, okay, well, thank you for this, but you can't—we can't use it in the picture. Um, so they took it's a slightly literal. Words. But they did go ahead and put it on their Fire of Unknown Origin album, which, of course, had their big hit Burning for You on it. So it, it, it it's out there. Uh, you can get that. But it, and it also contains Veteran of the Psychic Wars on there as well.
1: And, that, it, and it's just it's just a cool story, too. You know, it's a guy and he, he gets mixed up with the wrong girl. But he, you know, it, all, it all's well that ends well. What does he say at the end? Uh, it's a two day. Two-day trip. or Two-day two two day day ride with a sale. hell of a tip. <laughs> yeah, with a hell of a tip. He keeps the money and, all right, move it on. Right.
2: Yeah, I got another fare. They did the UN building. They turned it into low-rent housing. <laughs> and that was Richard Romanus by the way, uh, whose son, Roman Romanus gained worldwide fame as Mike Damone in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Isn't this great? Uh, which, which another is another movie we could do a movie and soundtrack story on. Back to the soundtrack a bit. Devo, working in a coal mine, which was in the credits, is on the soundtrack. But they had another song in the movie called Through Being Cool. And that's in the Tarna, the penultimate scene, where she's in the bar looking for the bad guys, and there's that freaky band. They're playing Through Being Cool. Um, So I kind of wish they put that on the soundtrack instead of working in a coal mine. Maybe it just fit better. I don't know. Mark Mothersbaugh wrote, of Devo fame, wrote through being cool. Obviously, the working in a coal mine is a cover. And maybe they figured a cover yeah. would work better for the soundtrack. I don't know. But that and E5150 of Black Sabbath are two songs that were in the movie but not on the soundtrack. Everything else made it.
1: And like you said, it was a legitimate hit on its own. People bought the the CD to listen to standalone, and I think that uh, I'm just trying to think it. Like I said, I don't I don't remember any losers from this. I mean, obviously you like some more than others, but there wasn't anything that was like oh, that didn't really work. That felt flat. Nah, all pretty good. And from from kind of a uh, a broad range of artists too. Like I wouldn't put Sammy Hagar. And Donald Fagan in the same. I wouldn't say Donald Fagin was heavy metal in any way, shape or form. Right.
2: But Devo with Black Sabbath. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> it's a weird one, Trust, though. The prefabricated song, Trust is a French band. And I've, I've almost never heard a French rock and roll band in my life. And don't know much about them, obviously. I think they've made a couple of records. But the song fit well in the movie, and it's good on the soundtrack. Uh, really? Got some good guitar work on it. The amount of talent on it from production to the acting, the picture, not only the soundtrack, all the different artists on the rock and roll, heavy metal soundtrack, but also getting Elmer Bernstein in there uh, to do the score. It really is a bit of a journey. It's an escape. It's like when you go to the movies and you don't want to just see the girl fall for the boy. Y- you want to take a ride, take a trip, go someplace else. Yeah, it has all I the great elements.
1: Yeah. Sit there and be entertained. And yeah, there, there doesn't have to be a coherent story. There doesn't have to be a, you know, Oh, okay. I see what's happening here. It's just, you just get up and you say, okay, well that was, that was art for art's sake. And it was pretty cool. And there were naked women in it.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Fan for young boys everywhere, violence and naked women, a bunch of rock and roll. And, And obviously something like this in today's culture He's frowned upon. Never, would never fly. Never but, fly but I think away. I
1: go back to that one, that John Candy one, Dan, I think it's called. It's mm-hmm. it, it's written as if a 15-year-old would have, like, like if you could imagine anything sitting in your bedroom. Right. Like, you know what? I really wish I was cool. And all the chicks dug me. And I was a super man that could do anything. So I, I really... That was, and of course, you know he he rescues the woman, and she's like, "Well, oh, thank you so much, and you can do whatever you want." Okay, that's <laughs> right, real. That's, that's not going right, to happen in right. real life. Come on, it's what a little but, kid thinks. But, so, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I think you have to take it in the spirit which it was intended. I don't think that there's. I mean, like you said, it's not going to get made today. It's not PC, but it's a it's a work of fiction. It's escapism. Let it fly the way it is. It's a moment in time.
2: It'll hit a chord with the with our dozen and a half listeners or whoever is out there right? they'll Correct. they'll understand I, I, right
1: you just again you just have to look at it like it, it's a time capsule you don't have to love everything about it now but you ha- it, it did exist it was there let's not pretend that it wasn't
2: exactly yeah and if you saw again if you see this stuff when you're a teenager when you're growing up it occupies a certain space in your brain and if you see it now as a 45 year old and you saw it for the first time Maybe it, it might not jibe. The other cool thing
1: about this was is that even if you take everything else out of it, it exists. Somebody in 1981 got all of this together in, in, and made a movie that wasn't like anything else that was out there. And I think that was cool. I really think that – because I think too much in Hollywood, you just follow along. I mean look at the way it is now. Everything is a superhero movie. That's, that's safe. That's what you can do. If you said, oh, I've got this other – Get out of here, we're not making that right now, especially
2: today. It's also money driven, it's also corporate driven. You can't take as many risks. I guess the good thing is, thanks to technology, it is easier for independent studios or uh, independent artists to maybe put something like this together but obviously you could never get the soundtrack without all that money i mean it's it's kind of an amazing little piece of hollywood that i think most people don't know about or if they know about it it's it's quaint it's not for them or whatever but i think it's a great piece of americana and a piece of rock and roll yeah with the
1: two things coming together and like you said you'd never get this thing cleared today you would never in a million years just because of the you had too many people fighting about it And I know that I've heard people say they've made movies before, like big time people saying, I really wanted to use this song, but we couldn't get it cleared. So you had to give up and use something else.
2: Sure. Absolutely. It's
1: just if you can if you can get the two things to link up, if you can get that song that really drives it over the top. Well, I mean, I guess the biggest one that you're going to think about in pop culture is John Cusack, uh, Say Anything, with the red Rain. Those two things, they're they are synonymous with each other. I mean, in, your again, eyes. in your eyes. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. In your eyes. Yeah. No, I, okay. No, I take it back. That's where I was going to go with that. Sorry. They played, when they filmed the movie, mm-hmm. parts of it, they played red Rain, ah. And then somebody was like, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's got to be in your eyes. And they had to go back and get it re cleared Ah. and then yes that worked a thousand times better
2: yeah Yeah, but but
1: yeah when you get those two things that go together it's fantastic
2: well they've made animated and of course anime japanese anime is a big industry it's not something i know a whole lot about but that's where i think a lot of the wherewithal or talent or desire to see something like a new heavy metal goes that channel but then that's not going to have the sixth soundtrack i mean you you'd have to be guardians of the galaxy where an integral part of the story are these songs from the 70s or from the 80s uh, and, and you know you're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars, so you go out and get those songs. But, you know, for a small budget thing like this and an animated thing, you'll never see that. Again.
1: And that's and that's probably the closest one that I've seen, closest movie I've seen in a long time, that that really used the music to drive the, the story in both of those. And I can't even – I mean, they make a billion dollars, so who cares? But I can't even imagine what it costs to get everything cleared. I mean they have one of them had My Sweet Lord from George Harrison. Mm. I mean, that's not that's not a cheap no. that's not a cheap get.
2: Nor should it be. Hey, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Ugly underscore werewolf. And let us know what you'd like to hear from us as far as an episode or think we may have missed on the previous ones. That's at Ugly underscore werewolf. So I actually wanted to do a little bit more on Heavy Metal 2000 because, no, I was not a huge fan. But we all waited for it for so long. And it does have some cool bits to it. The Kind of the lead antagonist in the picture is Billy Idol, which is pretty rock and roll. And Billy does... Contribute to the soundtrack. The soundtrack is way more heavy metal than the original, as far as you've got Monster Magnet, Pantera, System of a Down, Insane Clown Posse, Full Devil Jacket. I've never even heard of those guys. You know, Cold Chamber, Twisted, right? Uh, Hate Department. Bauhaus seems a little out of place. Uh, on this one, but it, like I said, it wasn't quite the same. It, the animation was better in that it was newer; they could incorporate better technology. It was one contiguous story, and the heroine in this was played by Julie Strain. Julie, I guess, made a living oh. being kind of a B movie actress or a late night actress or a horror movie actress. But it's not her fault. She's over six feet tall and she's be- built like penthouse pet of the year. So they're not going to make her Julia Roberts' friend in the rom-com. She-, she really only gets these fantastical science fiction horror pictures because she doesn't look real. And there's not many people who were built like her. And unfortunately, I think she was sick for a long time and passed away not all that long ago.
1: You uh, You kind of hit the nail on the head there before, maybe in, in our last conversation about how the first movie was so iconic. At that point in time, it was really a big mountain to climb over to compare to the first one. So it it, it, may, it may have been better if they had just called it something else and had a standalone mm-hmm. deal on it. I mean, it, it was a yeah, it was a decent movie. It wasn't like the first one. It was it was still pretty cool, but yeah, you're right, the head the soundtrack was a lot more. It fit a lot more with the name than the first one. I think the first one could have been called Hard Rock.
2: Right. But obviously, Heavy Metal, it's named after the the comic book and the fanzine there. And we were talking about how it couldn't get made today, uh, and everything's a superhero movie and things like that. But maybe it was just a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, like you said, you love that Den segment with John Candy in the main role. He was a superhero, now everybody's a superhero. If you've got a magazine or a comic book, even if it only sold five copies, it could be optioned into a movie today, right? And Sin City was a big, they call them graphic novels now, which are basically comic books for adults. Sin City had a couple of big movies, very big name stars in it. And 300, about the, the Spartans stand there against the, uh, the Persians... That was based on a graphic novel. You can kind of tell it, it's cut that way and it's shot that way. So while you couldn't make a movie just like this today, in some ways it's incredibly relevant just because of the way comic books are so popular, and even adult comic books or graphic novels, as they like to call them, are are popular, more popular than ever today.
1: True, and I'm I'm sad that I'm sad that it kind of didn't take off more to have more movies like that. But, um, you know, you got one that you can watch.
2: One thing we wish we were doing is reviewing shows, either shows that we went to or shows that we're going to see. By the time this comes out, the Liam Gallagher live show will have already happened. Unfortunately, shows that I was supposed to see this month, Steve Hackett, is postponed for a year. Genesis was supposed to happen two days ago, uh, and I'm completely bummed I didn't get to see that. What's got me worried is... Instead of postponing it till November of 2021, they've just postponed it to April of 2021. And I have a feeling that that's going to get postponed again because I was supposed to see Jeff Beck at Royal Albert Hall in May. Then they postponed that almost immediately in April to May of 2021. So I like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll do it a year later. And just a couple weeks ago, I got a note that said Jeff Beck now postponed till June 2022. I'm, I'm like, I, I don't even know if I'm going to be in London or alive in 2022. That's really far away. I certainly wouldn't buy the tickets today for 2022. Yeah. Um, so so that's going to be a long wait for that. But one more that was supposed to happen, Deep Purple, who I've never seen. And this is going to be at the O2, so that's a really big show. Opening for them is Blue Oyster Cult, who I've never seen. But good friend of mine, Paul Thompson, a so shout-out to Paul – He did hear the podcast and he sent me a note the other day because he heard Reaper and he remembered, didn't we go see, try to go see Blue Oyster Cult at Phoenix Hill Tavern in Louisville and the bassist got lost in Cincinnati and we had to go home before they did the show? (laughs) And the fact is, that's true. I convinced my two friends to go see Blue Oyster Cult because I'm like, it'll be great. We can see Burner for You and Godzilla and Don't Fear the Reaper. And maybe we'll learn some other songs that they have that that we like because those are the only three they ever played on classic rock radio. June seventeenth, nineteen 1992, we go to Phoenix Hill. I was only 18, soon to be 19. I didn't have a fake ID, so I had to sit there drinking Coca-Cola's. All night. And the bartender was getting mad because I kept going back to get a refill. And I only tipped him every once in a while. But we're just waiting and waiting and waiting and finally say, oh, yeah, the guy got lost in Cincinnati. And we don't know where he is, but he'll be here at some point. Well, our friend Jordan had like a straight job. You know, he had to be responsible and stuff like that, whereas I was just bussing tables or whatever. I was doing at that point and I, you know, I don't care I'll stay here till three in the morning it doesn't matter to me Jordan had a straight job and it's like eleven thirty 30 at night they still haven't come on yet so he said okay forget it we'll just go we'll go back to the box office we'll get our money back and, and we'll go and in fact they were going to start playing but Jordan's like no it's 11 30 I've been here for like four hours because back then we were all part of let's go see who the opening band is and let's soak it all up let's not be late and fight for a good spot and all that kind of stuff. So we've been there forever and seen no rock and roll, completely sober. Uh, so we leave. It turns out that to placate the growing crowd and, and their unrest, they came out and did four songs, mostly acoustic, with their bass tech. And I don't know who their bass tech was. John Rogers was their bass player at the time. Chuck Burgi, who had been in the band f- before, had just rejoined. John Maselli had played with them up until about three days before, and now Chuck Bergey was back. So this was Chuck's first gig, back with the band, and they come out and they do four songs. Astronomy uh, from Imaginous, Semi-Acoustic, Last Days of May, they do Don't Fear the Reaper, and then they do Roadhouse Blues, which is something they've done for a long time. Then eventually Rogers gets there and then they start in on their set and they do a somewhat abbreviated set, but they do eventually before the end do Don't Fear the Reaper again, this time in its full glory, not acoustically. So that was a fantastic show that I never saw, apparently. And if there's a bootleg out there, if anyone can get their hands on it, I would love to have a copy of that. Because Jordan, God bless him, he probably made the right call on Wednesday. June the seventeenth, when we had to get up and work the next day, we left at eleven thirty when they had not played a note. Uh, but it's a great story to tell. Would been even better if we'd stayed for the show. So shout out to Paul. So this is pre cell phones, no cell phones, right. no GPS, right. and apparently he flew into Lexington, but then got lost in Cincinnati. Which, you know, if you take I sixty five north instead of I sixty four west. That can easily happen from Lexington, right? All of a sudden, you look up and you're like, "Hey, I'm in Cincinnati. I'm supposed to be going to Louisville." So, yes, that that happens in the world of rock and roll. Kind of a Spinal Tap moment. And uh, I would love to hear the night if anyone's got it. Also, want to give a shout out to Matt B. No relation, who did uh, say he loved Six Pack. That was from the uh, 2000 year 2020 year in review when we were talking about Kenny Rogers. <laughs> uh, and I hope that Patty and Brett got their cheap trick fix. Uh, from the two songs on the Heavy Metal soundtrack on this. Thanks for listening out there, guys. One more thing from Heavy Metal. This might be embarrassing to admit, but Heavy Metal introduced me to the Ronnie James Dio version of Black Sabbath. Obviously, I knew the Ozzy version with Paranoid and Iron Man and War Pigs and all that. But when I saw the movie and then I got the soundtrack or I got into the soundtrack, listen to Black Sabbath, and I'm like, that is not Ozzy Osbourne. Do a little research. Well, it's Ronnie James Dio. And now, my friends, that is my favorite version of Black Sabbath. The heavy metal, the Ronnie James Dio version of Black Sabbath, especially those first two albums, Heaven and Hell and mob rules, I listen to -to back-to-back all the time. Anytime I go on a long hike, those are gonna be in there either to get me going, get me started, or at the point where I'm starting to feel tired and I need a little marching music just to kind of keep everything moving. But this movie introduced me to one of my favorite heavy metal bands, really, of all time.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that the Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath gets it most of the press. I mean, like you said, you you rattled off the hits and that was the first incarnation. And then, of course, Ozzy went on to great solo success. But you're right, the Dio stuff, if you start to listen to it, you say, hey, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because that dude, no offense, Ozzy, can really sing. I mean, Dio can just belt it out for a dude. This little tiny dude just gets up there and just wails on the vocals.
2: And could write and and could sing different things. I mean, Tony himself said Ozzy kind of just sang along with the melody or with the song.
0: Is he like,
2: you know, that's Ozzy (laughs) singing. Um, But Dio had a much bigger range. And it's the rare time when if a band breaks up, you get two very good outcomes. You get one solo and one band in a redirect. That doesn't always happen that way. Usually it's a watered-down version of each, or just one of them continues on strong and the other one kind of goes away. I I think it's much stronger than the Van Halen David Lee Roth split as yes, far as Ozzy's thinking that same better than Dave, Ozzy yeah. Solo, better than Dave. Uh, and what everything about Van Halen with Sammy, they were great. Dio years in Sabbath, just unfortunately too short, really. They had those two albums and a live album, Live Evil. Uh, they later got back together for Computer God in the early 90s. They just, they kind of missed their opportunity. I know it was on the Wayne's World soundtrack, one of the songs, but it's still just not the same. And then they put out another album when they were touring again as Heaven and Hell in the early part of the 2000s, and I saw them a few times. Totally worth it. So glad that I saw. Uh, it was it was fantastic. And one more thing from the previous from the 2020. I, I did talk about how Neil Young has an archives two coming out. There's a couple different versions. There's a one I think with Blu-rays that makes it super expensive. If you just get the retail version, it's only 120 pounds or maybe $160. It doesn't come... You can't take delivery until March, so it might not make the best Christmas present. However, someone was lucky enough to get it. And if you get it, right away, you can get the FLAC downloads of all 139 songs on all the 10 discs that come with it. So I've already started to work my way through some of those. So that's pretty cool. So if you want to give somebody this Neil Young Archives, or get it for yourself, okay, maybe you have to have an IOU, but you could go ahead and, and get the uh, order it and then download the music and hand them over that, and they could listen to it for the next couple months before they get the physical package. So kind of a neat thing from Neil, and I wanted to put that out there. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, And if you want to hear us talk about an album that's important to you, something that's going on in the world of rock and roll, let us know. You can tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf. Until then, please keep listening, be cool, and stay safe.